Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about an interesting topic, uh, giants. Now, Brandon's been with us a while. He says, I am waiting for the giants. And this is uh, seems to be a very key topic in Christian debates. People get really heated about giants in the Bible. One time I was talking to a guy and he pulled me aside and he said, uh, he's like, I got to talk to you about something serious. I'm like, okay, yeah. And he's like, Let's talk about the Nephilim. <laughs> like, like what? Uh, so I had this whole side co comment about all this guy's theories on the Nephilim and giants and how big they were. Uh, it was fantastic. I just uh, sat there and shook my head and uh, said, yep, uh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, let's go take a look at some of the biblical evidence and some of the biblical passages that are used for giants in the Bible. Genesis 6 comes to mind, which is very common, and for some reason, within the last week, there's all sorts of debates all over Facebook about this, and so, bringing it to my attention, uh, it's not, it says stop screen, okay, all I have to do is share screen here, add, add the screen, I got Genesis 6 pulled up, which is where much of the debate comes about, because this is an interesting passage in the Bible about some sort of something going on with certain individuals. Genesis 6.1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. So we got some sort of daughters and they're being born to men. All right, so Genesis 6.2, there seems to be another group of people that are introduced here. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as wives any they choose. So what happens here is a second group is introduced who looks at the daughters of the first group that, that's introduced, and then they grab wives as they choose. A lot of Jewish commentaries, I think, correctly recognize that as they choose means regardless of if, if the woman's married or not, if uh, she's single, uh, if, if she's willing or not willing, that's kind of the idea, that the second group has some sort of power over the first group and is able to just selectively grab women as they like. And I, I, I do think that is correct. Genesis uh, 6.3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. So this seems to be some sort of, uh, God doesn't like what's going on. God sees this, doesn't like it, and then he gives them some sort of time frame. It looks like he's putting a time limit on the earth for the earth to heal before he judges the earth. He says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. So Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim. Now this is an interesting word. This word is used elsewhere in Numbers, and it refers to perhaps giants in the land. When, when Israel goes and they scout out the land, and they come back to Moses, and they say, oh, there's giants in the land, so we can't go there. We're all scared of this. So Nephilim are like a mighty people or giants or something like that's going on with this word. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. It seems to be like a separate group than the sons of God and a separate, separate group than the men introduced in Genesis 1. And also afterwards, when the son of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So it looks like this Nephilim, this, this, these individuals are born from, from the offspring of the second group, this powerful group, and the first group's daughters, the men's daughters. And so Nephilim seems to be a third group entirely. 
These were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. And so their offspring seems to be some sort of mythical figures, some sort of legendary creatures, legendary figures, legendary heroes. I, I, I think when, when I read this, my mind instantly goes to individuals like Hercules, a, a demigod who uh, has superhuman strength and is, is the result of offspring be, between a divine being and a human. And they, they breed and they create some sort of superhuman, a man of renown, a hero, someone who has this, this, this special genetics, special calling. So that, that, that's what I instantly read when I read this. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. And God regretted that he had made man on earth and grieved him in his heart. And so all of this, God, God sees as sin and wickedness and is part of the overall wickedness that we see throughout the earth. So whatever this is, it has to be a bad thing. And so then we start to ask, who are these various groups? Now I'm going to read a very interesting Jewish commentary, a Jewish interpretation that goes against a lot of the different grains that we, we commonly think of when we read this passage. And so in this, this, uh, this is a commentary by Turk Akharak, I don't know how I'm saying that, uh, but this is a Jewish commentary on Genesis 6. They state that the children of God is a reference to individuals that God created directly. It says that Adam and Shavah are here referred to children of God as they had been direct product of God's creative activity. And so in this, in this reading, children of God, sons of God, this is people who are directly created by God. This is not people who spawned from other humans, and it's Adam himself that's grabbing whoever he wants out of the children of men and uh, breeding with them. And so it goes on to say that uh, basically that these direct creations of God have superior genetics. This is like uh, DNA uh, eugenics going on here where Adam and Shavah's superior genetics then spawn superior genetic children who are these, it says, <laughs> these children of Adam and Shavah were in a class by themselves, seeing that their father had passed on to them a great deal of genes of the, genetic perfectly, the genetically perfect first man on earth. It's possible that the first pair of humans and their immediate sons were referred to as sons of God as they more than any subsequent human reflected what was called, probably uh, means image or something, I'm not sure, at the time when God created the first pair of human beings. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably what it's referring to there. These people never engaged in idol worship, whereas their offspring had already begun to see other powers on earth, deities of kind, albeit surrogates of the creator. In keeping with this tendency of people to defy powers of nature, their own physical dimensions and strengths declined. And so these other people start worshiping false gods, and so then their genetics decline. But the first humans, since they were born with this superior genetics, they're able to retain these genetics and pass it down to their children directly. So this is a pretty interesting reading. So it says that when human population increased on Earth, and the, there began to be competition for good-looking female partners, the men of earlier generations, due to their superior prowess, overpowered their more poorly endowed competitors and grabbed themselves whatever they chose. 
Originally, they married such girls even against their will, but yeah, eventually their morals deteriorated to such a degree that they raped girls without offering marriage. I don't know how you read all of that from the Genesis passage, but apparently that's, that's how they're reading this. And generally, this did not come to light until the features of the children born from such illegal liaisons did not resemble either of their parents, but showed genetic likeness to the members of the giants. And so in, in this reading, sons of God are literally individuals who are created directly from God. Now, this is not the common reading. A lot of the Jewish commentaries take a reading much like judges. And we're, we're actually going to pull up a YouTube video in which the guy makes the case that these, these, these could be like judges or important people. And uh, I, I will preface this. None of these are my reading. They're just interesting alternatives that should be considered. And so, stop screen, share screen. In this next video, it's an individual from, it says, who are the Nephilim? Let's, let's share that. It's an individual from uh, Von, uh, Zondervan. Zondervan typically puts out a lot of good works. And so we'll listen to how he takes this passage. And, and he's fairly generous, it seems. Well, let's turn our attention to uh, chapter 6 and a very challenging narrative. Chapter 6 begins, When humans began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The fallen ones, or Nephilim, were on the earth in those days, and also after, when the sons of God came. Yeah, a lot of the Jewish commentaries, they do consider this fallen ones the correct etymology of the word for Nephilim. And a lot of them explain it that these guys were so mighty that individuals fell on their faces when they saw them. So they were called the Nephilim. And some of the commentaries say, oh, they fell from heaven, therefore they're the Nephilim. And uh, uh, Michael Heiser takes the position that the etymologies not actually fallen ones. It doesn't actually lead to fallen ones. It's a different form of the word. And so this, this, is, this, is, a, this is a false reading of what that word originally means. It's interesting that the Septuagint turns this into giants. And so the Septuagint writers seem to have seen these Nephilim as equivalent to giants. Came into the daughters of humans and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty ones of old men of name. Well, let's start with the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? Now, if the term Nephilim were used in my Hebrew class, my students would translate it fallen ones. If Nephilim means fallen ones, why did the Septuagint translate it uh, gigantes or giants? That's an interesting question. Now in Numbers chapter 13, we'll get there after a while, the 10 scouts compare the large size Anakites to the Nephilim. Actually, they say the large Anakites are Nephilim. Now the problem in this case is that the narrator of, num of Numbers chapter 13 says that the 10 scouts are giving a bad report. And in that case, meaning they are 
giving it an intentional distortion of the facts. So that really raises a question for us is, I understand why the giants from Numbers 13 might be put into Genesis chapter 6 by the Septuagintal translators, but it doesn't seem like a bad report that's intentionally distorted is a good reason to think that there's giants here. Okay, so this, this is a very weird argument he's making. Uh, he says that uh, Numbers, there, there might actually not be giants in Numbers, even though the word Nephilim is used. Um, but they're using that word, and even if it's a false report, let's pretend his reading is actually true, that they're actually just giving a completely fabricated report or just a highly exaggerated report. And uh, the word's still going to mean something that's going to be intimidating for their audience. And it's, it's likely, likely giants is still going to be a good reading for that word. And so having that word mean giants... It's, it's, it's probably accurate, and it's probably reflective of the meaning in Genesis 6. At a close enough time frame, it's, it's probably the same concept being communicated. But I, I actually don't think it's a good argument to say that because it's called a bad report, that it's, it's a questionable report, because a lot of times in the Bible, language just doesn't work like that. <laughs> That's one of the things people, people are very particular about going over language and trying to force meaning into language. Maybe a bad report is just a report containing bad information like information that's not favorable, information that we don't like could be a bad report. And so it's it's probably a mistake to read, to see, see language like a bad report and say, oh, these guys are just lying or it's a massive exaggeration. That's probably reading too far into the text and bringing too much of our priors. Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 6-4, we realize that if we read it very literally, like the translation I gave you, the passage characterizes the Nephilim without respect to their size. It says they are mighty heroes, persons of name. We might say persons of reputation from antiquity. Now, they could be large-sized warriors, but not necessarily. They're described here for their might, their prowess, and their fame. Now, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of humans? That is literally the... So I really believe that something genetic is going on in Genesis 6. Because this Nephilim, these powerful mighty ones, are described as the offspring of the sons of God. And so something's going on there in which they are have some sort of lineage type factors that adds to their stature. And might be being downplayed by our individual here. I don't, I don't know who this guy is. Uh, Professor Gary Snijitter. I don't know if I said that right. But he might be downplaying that a little much. Uh, Ha'adam. The human race. Now some say that the daughters of humans are females from the line of Cain. And the sons of God are males from the line of Seth. Now, where this comes from is, if we remember in Genesis chapter 5, which we looked at in this session, um, Adam is a son of God and Seth is a son of Adam. So in that sense, the line of Seth that's um, spelled out in chapter 5, they could be the sons of God over and against the 
daughters of humans from the line of Cain. That's one way. Yeah, that is one way. I don't think that is probable in the least. So I think that's the least probable reading of that. To go, and there's some other spins that could go a little bit of a different way. But I, I do think that that reading that he just did, that's within the Jewish commentary that I, I pulled up. One of the options that are given by the Jewish scribes. A lot, a lot of these, a lot of these commentaries from the the Jews are coming from uh, 200 A.D. and afterwards. But all the earlier commentaries on this, such as from the Book of Enoch, and even we saw from the Septuagint, is reading this more as a Nephilim giant situation, that the sons of God are angels. The angels have some interbreeding with humans, which spawns giants. Now, I, I don't know if this particular reading, we probably haven't talked about it yet on this uh, podcast, but we will get there eventually. Um, but specifically, the genealogies in Genesis chapter 4 and 5 are thought to maybe line up to these uh, two people, sons of God, daughters of humans. But others say that the sons of God are celestial beings. Sometimes we call them angelic beings. Fallen ones who are perverting the human race by seducing women. Now, although Christian laity often enjoy debating these and other views, one thing that's important for us to recognize is that the upshot in this passage, in either case, is that God saw the wickedness of the human race and decided to kill everyone. Yeah, he, he's absolutely right there. The, the entire point of this passage in Genesis 6 is not about giants. It's not about mighty ones. It's about God's perception, God's change of heart, God's change of mind, God's grief, and God's destruction of the world as a result. That is the primary focus. But let's go back to let's go back to the text and take a look at if there's any details within the actual text that could actually point us towards what the actual meaning is. Now, I'm not saying I have definitive answers, but uh, I think I have uh, a decent understanding of what's going on here. I, I think it's accurate here. So it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and took as their wives any they chose. The sons of God is an interesting phrase. Uh, you could you could take that phrase, you could put it in a search engine and start pulling up other times that that is used, that exact phrase. So sometimes within the Old Testament, God says, uh, you guys will be my sons. Or within the New Testament, I'll, I'll say sons of God. Of course, the New Testament's not written in Hebrew, so it's not going to be the exact phrase. But within the New Testament, it always says, oh, you're going to become a son of God. But the phrase sons of God in the Hebrew, this exact phrase shows up several times in which it looks like it's, it's not actually referring to human beings. We're going to switch over to Job. Now, now, Job is a very interesting passage as well, because a lot of people within the same people, it seems like it's the same individuals who are going to claim that the sons of God within Job 1 and the sons of God, uh, they're going to claim the sons of God in Job 1 are men and not angels. They're the same individuals that are going to claim in Genesis 6 that the sons of God there are men and not angels. 
they they entirely discount any divine council imagery, which I think is a big mistake. I I think it's ideologically motivated because I think their their intent is to sanitize the Bible of anything that might be embarrassing. If God's holding court and calling angels to testify to him about their daily activities, that might be embarrassing. If there's a heavenly host that comes down to impregnant women, yeah, that's kind of weird. And we might uh, instantly push against that and uh, make up interesting arguments to try to discount that. But I actually do think that in Job, this is a divine council setting. There's a divine bet going on in the divine world and the world is a secondary stage down below that's viewed from the outside as a betting ground. It says that now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, the Satan, it's, it's not a proper noun even though it's capitalized here, the tempter also came among them. And so it reads as if the Satan is part of the sons of God which fits divine counsel imagery in which the Satan would be an angel or a divine being that would report before God in the divine counsel. So these are these these are angels here. Job also uses sons of God in a very interesting context a little bit later in which the sons of God they watch God create the world. And so are these sons of God are these going to be are these going to be men? Let, let's read this. So God is talking to Job. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He said, When I was creating, there's a group called the sons of God, and they are shouting for joy in the beginning of the creation in which you were not present and probably no other person is present this is the creation of the world the sons of god in job 38 7 is fairly obviously referring to angels and so if this same idea sons of god uh, is also applied to job 1 which i think is accurate and then also applied to genesis 6 what you have in genesis 6 is angels procreating with women so let, let's go on and to see if there's any other evidence for this within the Bible. We'll turn to, uh, let's see, 2 Peter 2.5. We'll start at 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. That's interesting. When, when did these angels sin? He says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Huh. So, if verse 4 is connected to verse 5, and they're talking about the same incident in, in Genesis 6, where the angels sin, and the angels do some sort of sin within Genesis 6, and the only sin that we see in Genesis 6 is some sort of procreation or creation of Nephilim, if, if that's the case, if the, and uh, 2 5 refers to the same incident, then you have pretty strong evidence that Peter here in 2 Peter 2 4 is reading giants or mighty men or the offspring of angels into Genesis 6 as, as the Nephilim. Okay, there, there might be actually some more evidence as well. We'll turn to Jude. Jude 1 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, 
Uh, that's a weird translation. Let's flip over to King James. And the angels who did not keep in their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under a darkness for the judgment of the great day. And so what would that mean that they, they don't stay in their own abode or authority? It almost sounds like they're condescending and coming to earth or violating some sort of, some sort of taboo, right? And this, this actually couldn't make sense with how the Bible's written. So angels within the Bible are, are predominantly described as male. Angels are male. There, there might be one verse in Zechariah in the context of a vision that someone has in which there are, are women, divine creatures, but el everywhere else in the Bible, angels are male. So if angels are male and uh, angels have the ability to procreate with women, it makes sense that they're coming down to earth to uh, relieve themselves or, or gain some sort of gain some sort of utility out of human women due to their natural urges. So let's let's read that into this. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all they chose. And so what we see here, if this is the correct reading, is mankind's uh, spawning a lot of children. There's a lot of beautiful women running around. The sons of God as their duties are within the Bible, angels, they watch the world, they're, they're watchers, and uh, that's what they'd be reporting to God on in Job 1. When, when they report to God, they're talking about the doings of the earth. So these are the individuals, they, they see these women, and they start having kids with these women. And then God says, uh, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, is indeed flesh, his days shall be 120 years. And so God puts a time limit on mankind's activities to cut them off or to judge them. There were giants on the earth in those days, Nephilim, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So looking at this, the giants or the Nephilim are the offspring of angels and men who seem to have some sort of divine property or something something different about them. Remember the LXX translates it as giants. It may or may not be a giant. It may, may be a giant in the sense that Goliath is a giant. Goliath might be one of these individuals, which is a result of offspring between angels and humans. And that might explain the various giants we see throughout the Old Testament other than this. So Nephilim itself, it might actually not refer to giants. It could just be mighty men, but they might also be giants. They might also be, you know, those eight feet giants. The book of Enoch, of course, has giants and they have like huge, huge 30 story tall giants within it. I don't think that's what this is referring to here. But in any case, this word represents most likely the name of the offspring between humans and and angels another reason is probably in enoch when they're where they're describing the giant size if if the these giants are procreating with women they can't be like they can't be skyscraper tall so uh <clears throat> elizo writes and there we saw the nephilim the sons of anak who come from the nephilim and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers 
so we seem to them. So yeah, we don't know if that's hyperbole, if they are, um, you know, sometimes, let's say these giants are eight feet tall, you might say, oh, I felt like a grasshopper to these individuals. It, it might not speak towards the giant giants that we see within the book of Enoch. Yeah, we, so we don't know what's going on there. If it's hyperbole or if it's just a figure of speech or if it's uh, like literal, like we're the size of grasshoppers compared to them. I don't think it's the latter one. I do think it's hyperbole or or just a way to emphasize your fear of what's going on in that certain location. But back to Genesis 6. So this Nephilim, it could just mean mighty men, men that are fierce warriors, people we don't want to fight. And sometimes I see a guy and uh, he's like super buff, like you see like a girl's husband. You're like, I would not take that guy in a fight. That could be the idea here. It's like, this guy would definitely defeat a lot. A lot of times men, when men look at other men, they're like, I could take that guy or I, I probably can't take that guy. It's a normal male thing to do. And they're probably like, oh, we, we definitely can't take these guys. It'd be a bad idea. They would definitely destroy us. But back to Genesis 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of heart was on evil continually. So there, there are some objections to these being angels and the offspring of angels. Number one, someone claimed that since they used the word men, that God saw the wickedness of men. And uh, since he's using the word man, it can't be referring to the sons of God. And it can't be referring to Nephilim or giants or anything like that, because they're all using the word men. And so I asked this individual, I asked him about Genesis 18, where God himself and angels are called men throughout the text. It turns out Language doesn't work with hard and fast rules, like I always say, that oftentimes there's a lot of flexibility to how terms are used. So even God himself can be called a man, and it's fitting. The narrator can use it. Uh, people within the text could call God a man. Angels in the text are called men. It's just a normal term, kind of meaning, you know, we, we, we see an individual, we see a figure, we could call it a man. Let's say we saw a robot cat walking around. Someone designs a robot cat. You say, oh, look at that cat right there. Oh, we don't call it not a cat because it's a robot. Uh, people don't use words with that type of precision. We use pattern recognition. And so since these individuals fit the pattern, you're able to use terms like men, even for people who are angels and people who are even God himself. It's not a good argument. Another argument that I've heard multiple times, and this one really gets me, because it's it's such a bad argument, as they turn to Jesus and Jesus discussing marriage in heaven. The Pharisees ask Jesus, they say, hey, are we going to be married in heaven? And he says, no, we're not going to be married like the angels in heaven. And they'll say, so <laughs> this is the literal argument that one guy made. I'm not going to name him, but it, it was pretty funny. Uh, he said, because if the angels could have sexual relationships, God would have given them a sexual outlet, and, theref and that would have been in the form of marriage. Therefore, since the angels aren't married, then uh, the angels don't have that sexual outlet. Therefore, the angels don't have sexual biological functions that they could engage in, uh, that, that they're sexless. They, they, they have none of those things. Because Jesus said that the angels don't marry in heaven, and say, saying we're going to be like the angels. And so that's 
that's one of these really bad ways to read the Bible, is to take a completely unrelated text. Jesus is not giving a commentary on Genesis 6. He's not talking about Genesis 6. Genesis 6, probably not even in his mind. And so to take take his statements in one part of the Bible and then apply them retroactively to Genesis 6 to rule over the interpretation of Genesis 6, that's, that's a very bad practice. Uh, more likely is the case is that they might be misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. Michael Faber makes a very good argument in one thread with the, on God is Open that the phrase there for we're not going to be married in heaven, it's it's either it's either Michael Faber or it's a Jordan, I don't know the guy, last guy's last name, but he makes the case that Jesus is not saying that there's never going to be marriage again, but when we initially spawn, we're not going to be married. And so I don't think that Jesus is talking about metaphysical absolutes, that the angels can never be married in any circumstances. There's just not currently a marriage institution in heaven for angels, and we're going to be like that in the resurrection, but it might change afterwards. I think that's a fairly probable reading of Jesus. And so Jesus himself might not be making the case that there's never going to be marriage for us, or that there's never going to be marriage for angels. That's probably not what's going on there. It's not a commentary on Genesis 6, and it's not something that we could, three steps later, try to figure out the sexual, biological functions of angels. It's just not present there. And so using it as a proof text is a pretty bad hermeneutics. So... Uh, Alesso says it could be hyperbole, but there there is some truth to it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, hyperbole is based in truth. Metaphor is based on truth. It connects cognitive domains, takes our understanding of one issue, and then maps it on to another issue. So these, these are things we need to be aware of. That even Here's one thing that I pointed out, that even texts like Enoch, which describe giants, which are the sizes of skyscrapers, um, that gives us some sort of data point to the mentality at the time it's written. Because if you're going to fabricate, I, I don't think Enoch's genuine. I don't think that's like a genuine writing down of inspired text. But if you're going to make up stories, you're going to draw on popular assumptions and popular readings and then expand on those, give those details, draw them out so that your audience connects with your work and accepts your work as genuine. And so it seems to be at the time of Enoch, and we, we all already kind of saw throughout the Bible in Peter and in Jude, that people kind of understood Genesis 6 as a coupling of, of angels and humans to create some sort of hybrid offspring. And so the author of Enoch is drawing on that popular conception so that his audience can connect with his work and then buy into his works. Like if you're fabricating a work, like there's a lot of forgeries and uh, their pretend gospels that were floating around in the first few centuries uh, AD, they, they would draw on existing works. They'd draw on things that people already knew. And in that way, their audience, they would accept part of it as genuine. And then they would accept the whole as genuine because they see the parts that they already understand and agree with. And it, it sucks them in. It draws them in. So Enoch's just not making this up out of nowhere. Uh, the author of Enoch, he's drawing on some sort of popular meme, popular understanding, or popular legend that people are already familiar with. 
what does the angel sex theory add to the story of the Bible? That, that, that is an interesting question. It seems to be part of the overall wickedness at that time. That, that seems to be some of the key elements that this is so taboo and outside of what God intended that this exemplifies the wickedness of the world at that time. Since this is the only real the sin activity that we get in God's decision to destroy the world, apparently this is taboo enough for that, which, which is really interesting in itself. So you don't see big descriptions of uh, homosexual sex. Some people have actually said that of all whom they choose, that refers to animals and it refers to homosexual activity. Maybe, maybe. I, I could see the argument, but maybe not. But I, I think really the thing that was getting on God's nerves was this proliferation of this tab taboo activity, sexual taboos. Sex sexual taboos are weird within the Bible. We'll have to do a whole episode on biblical sexual ethics. Like, for example, you're not supposed to, if your wife's on her period, you're not actually supposed to have sex with her or relations with her. That was a death penalty offense, which it, that's it's weird to us today to understand having sex with a woman on her period as a death penalty offense. But to God, it was really, that was very much a taboo activity that was worthy of just killing someone outright. So we need to be careful not to import also our own sexual ethics onto the Bible. It might be a mistake. So Greg writes that he's not sold on the Nephilim series. So I didn't say that the Nephilim are giants per se. The Nephilim, at as described in Genesis 6, seem to be some sort of hybrid individuals and could be linked to the giants throughout the Bible, eight-foot giants, like ten-foot uh, giants, like uh, Goliath, individuals like that. It could be. There's some sort of genetic something going on because of the way the text describes them as being the offspring of the sons of God within the text. They're mighty and men of renown. So remember, if you're looking at Greek literature, Greek literature also has individuals like Hercules, people who are half deity and half human, and what they are are like superhuman, but they're not necessarily giants. They might be larger than normal people, people like Achilles. Uh, they might have more power, more prowess, but they, they, they tend to function in human society without people knowing necessarily that they are these divine beings. They're just men of renown, men of, men, heroes, heroes within the Greek legends and tragedies. And we, we should keep in mind that, you know, if, if there are angelic beings, and if these angelic beings can couple with humans, that maybe there, there's some truth to these other legends. All these legends are not made up out of nowhere or out of, out of nothing. They come from somewhere, and a lot of times these legends have some basis in truth. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go ahead and just discount any mythology that we ever read anywhere. We have to read it and understand it for what it is and wonder where it came from, what generated those legends. Uh-oh, Jaycon says that Jaycon says that they're talking about this in club in Clubhouse. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. That would be interesting. See, everyone's talking about giants within the last week. I don't know what's going on. But uh, there are giants within the Bible. Goliath is one of them. And Goliath has some brothers uh, within in the text of uh, Kings. Things like that. Giants do exist within the Bible. 
I don't think there, there's a big picture that goes around on creationist videos sometimes that shows like a giant that's like the size of a skyscraper that people are excavating. And I think that's a complete Photoshop. I don't think it's real. And I, I don't think it's accurate to believe. I don't believe in 450 foot tall giants. So I'm going to throw that out there. Agatha, sa Ar Agatha says the Jews living in giving the bad report about the promised land certainly thought that the Nephilim were giants. That, as in, as in uh, formidable opponents that could easily beat individuals. So like, let's say you see, oh, who's the guy who played Aquaman? There, there's that actor, Jason Melmoa. I don't know how tall he is, but uh, I think he's like six or seven feet, maybe like seven or eight feet, something like that. And he's like a big dude. If I saw him, and I saw a bunch of Samoans, and uh, it's just me and a, a war band, and I have to report back to them. I might come back and say, these guys are giants. They're, they're Nephilim. Um, let's not fight these guys. They're going to just kill us all. And so that could be the case. That might be what's happening here. So they might, might be just describing mighty men that are formidable warriors that you don't want to tangle with whatsoever. And that actually could be what's being referred to in Genesis 6 because that it reads just the same. And there were formidable uh, genetics, uh, superpower type men on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of the men and they bore children to them. So that you have these individuals that are then described as those were mighty men who are of old, men of renown. So they have some sort of prominence associated with them. You don't get too much descriptive qualities other than that. Uh, Gertha says they were grasshoppers in their sight, maybe some exaggeration. Well, yeah. So you have to wonder how much of it's exaggerations, how much of it's hyperbole. Um, if, if I was giving a report to try to dissuade people from attacking a bunch of Samoans, I might say, hey, we're just grasshoppers to these guys. They're just going to crush us like bugs. Even the English phrase, they're going to crush us like bugs. Think about how that is used within modern language. Something similar could easily be going on there. It doesn't necessarily demand that the giants are really like we're the size of grasshoppers when compared to their actual physical height. It could be more like they're going to crush us like bugs. Yeah, Eliso says, people believe in giant dinosaurs, but giant humans are ridiculous. Oh, yeah, there's giants in the Bible, yeah, like Goliath. But anyways, so those are my thoughts on Genesis 6. I, I think there's a lot of bad arguments that go along with trying to make Genesis 6 not about human, angel, hybrid humans. Um, now, a lot of them, <laughs> I've seen a lot of them. One of the worst ones is that Jesus doesn't think angels have sex, which Jesus never said wasn't a claim by, by his. It's, it's not good hermeneutics to just go way outside a text to a text that's not even talking about your particular proof text and then use it as evidence to persuade you in a particular reading on a text, completely unrelated text. It is a better idea to go to places like Jude, uh, see what Jude might have in mind with these texts, to see what future commentary on this text look like and how they handle this text. Look at data, pieces of evidence such as Enoch, see how they treated the text. Look at actual commentary of the text 
before we decide what's going on here. And so uh, we, we could always take the Jewish reading of this, that these men of, sons of God are Adam and other directly created beings, and they just have superior genetics. Uh, they're the true race, and they're just breeding a, a, a superhuman race through the daughters of their sons, which have fallen genetics. Could be something like that going on, too. So th there are possibilities, um, but I don't think sexless angels is one of these. Anyways, I'm losing my voice, and so I'm probably going to have to cut us off there, go cough a lot or something like that. And uh, But thanks for chiming in. Thanks for listening, and uh, definitely some back and forth in the comments. Oh, yeah, if, uh, if you're listening to this and you like my show, please go review the book, my book, God is Open, on Amazon. Uh, tell us honest feedback. It would be fantastic. Thanks for listening.